13. We are continuing on in our sermon series, looking at the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to be actually looking at three separate texts. And there's a little bit of an extended uh, scripture reading. Normally I would have you guys stand for the reading of scripture, but today, since it's three different passages and a little bit longer, you can go ahead and keep your seats this morning. So uh, these are three very distinct texts, as you'll see, and we'll talk about why we're looking at three different, very, very different uh, texts. So the first text that's going to be on screen, or if you want to pick up your Bible, that's fine too. It's going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And this uh, is an interaction between Jesus and a religious scholar named Nicodemus. And uh, we're going to look at John 3, beginning in verse 5. And it says this, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now we're going to look at Genesis, the creation account. We're going to look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And lastly, we're going to be looking at Acts 2, and this is where we will spend the bulk of our uh, time here together this morning, Acts chapter 2. And we're, this, this is uh, immediately after the Apostle Peter has just preached a message of repentance to thousands of people. It's called the Day of Pentecost, and it's recognized as the birth of the church uh, immediately after this sermon. And so we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 37. Now, when they, the people, heard this, the sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now skipping from verse 38 to 42, they've received the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So what's going on in these three very different texts? Why are we reading a conversation between Jesus and a religious scholar? Why are we looking at the creation account? And why are we looking at the beginning of the church? Uh, what do we see about the Holy Spirit 
in every single one of these three texts. We see, just giving it straight to you, we see that the Holy Spirit brings life and flourishing. I'll say it again. The Holy Spirit brings life and flourishing. We see Jesus tell Nicodemus that you must be born again or you must have spiritual life, that it's through the Spirit that we're born again. It's through the Spirit that we have spiritual life. And the Genesis account includes the Holy Spirit as part of the account when God bestows life on creation. So the Spirit isn't just responsible for spiritual life. The Spirit was also part of physical life. And then in Acts 2, we see... Uh, that when people repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which manifests in their spiritual life. And we see flourishing in the church, flourishing when the Holy Spirit uh, comes. And so the Spirit brings life and flourishing. Yay, right? All of us here, I suspect, when I say the Spirit brings life and flourishing, there's kind of a collective yawn, right? Instead of breaking out in, into celebration, right? When I say the spirit brings life and flourishing, all of us are kind of like, yeah, that's cool. That's all right, right. Why? Why? Why aren't we breaking out into celebration about the Holy Spirit giving us the gift of life and flourishing? Why? And I think it's because we've bought into a cultural shift in mindset called schadenfreude. Is there a word? Like, uh, put it on screen for us, schadenfreude. You guys know what this word is, right? No? <laughs> you guys are like, what are we talking about? Schadenfreude is the word of the day class. Okay, let's talk about schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is a compound word. Schoden is the German word, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's the word for damage or harm, okay? And then Freud means joy. So the word... Uh, it literally means harm joy. And the idea behind schadenfreude is to derive a sense of joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, life at the harm, damage, misfortune, and demise of others. Okay? Um, one article I read uh, put it this way. I think the quote will be on screen for us as well. Uh, it says, people who score relatively high or relatively highly on measures of the dark triad of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, which by the way, Americans, we score high on all of these things, uh, as well as in the trait of sadism, also tend to feel more schadenfreude. And all of these personality traits have been linked to dehumanization, perceiving another person or members of a group as lacking at least some of the attributes that make us all human, the researchers note. When groups or even entire nations feel schadenfreude, it can become more potent and insidious, driving deep-seated prejudices that can lead to violence. And that article was written by uh, Emma Young, and the article is entitled, Schadenfreude Turns Us Into Temporary Psychopaths, uh, According to a New Model of the Emotion, <laughs> okay? So you don't have to think too hard to see how this plays out in culture, but I would suspect that when I define it, you know, define schadenfreude, that a lot of us in here are like, oh, I, I don't feel that way. No, that's not me. 
But as I've become aware of this emotion or this word, uh, I've realized throughout this week, I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel this all the time everywhere. And you probably do too. We don't even realize how it permeates our culture, right? None of us feel that way, right? Unless the Bengals are playing, unless the Bengals are playing at the Steelers in particular. And then we hope that we destroy them. We don't just want to win We want to pulverize them, right? We want to punish them for the sin of being a Pittsburgh Steelers, right? Schoenfreud, here's a a great, uh, here's an article. This was an article from 2016. Bengals fans cheer, right? This this is what what we're talking about. We see it all over our culture. It's in sports. I guarantee you it's it's definitely in our politics. We'll talk about that. It's uh, It's in your workplace. It's everywhere. We see it all over our culture. We, it's not just enough to win. We also want to see the other side damaged and harmed. Everyone on the left right now is celebrating the pain, harm, suffering, and damage of those on the right. And everyone on the right celebrates the, the pain, the harm, the damage of those on the left. And so we're in a culture where right now, this week, we, we have those that are laughing at the misfortune and embarrassment of a president who, you know, is is or a, a former president that's uh, that paid to try to hide illicit affairs, I, you know, or there's just a mess. And then we also laugh at the misfortune and embarrassment of a president who's aging and showing signs of that aging and tripping all over his, himself. And the fact that we derive joy and satisfaction from both of these things shows instead of sorrow, instead of sorrow, shows us and reveals a lot about our culture. And the fact that we as Christians have probably bought into some of that. We, so when we read about the life and the flourishing that the Holy Spirit has to offer us about the flourishing of all people, we're kind of like, yawn. That's not the life that I, the, the life and flourishing uh, as, a, as I would define it, right? What really matters, what really gets the views, what really gets our attention is stoking that anger. But hatred, the secret wishes of violence, uh, the desire to see the other side go down and humiliating defeat permeates everything. It permeates, your work cultures are that way too, right? It's not just politics and sports. Your work culture is that way. Like, I don't just want to get, I don't want to just get promoted. I want to see my coworker that I don't like, I want to see them be demoted, right? It's, we have this inside of us. In, our, in my lifetime, our culture has profoundly shifted, profoundly changed. We now derive our energy and life from being nasty, just nasty culture that we're living in. We define flourishing as me winning, but the humiliation also of others. We used to want our political side to win, our sports team to win, or to get that job promotion. We used to want to win because we believed in something good, like we were for something. Now we're compelled by, not by what we're for, by, but by what we're against, right? The, the idea of even winning now is almost secondary. The, the thing that we principally want is just to humiliate the other side. In fact, I heard a presidential candidate uh, say this week, uh, and when he was questioned and, and kind of confronted on the, the very aggressive rhetoric he was having towards his own side, by the way, towards those on his 
own political side. He was being very aggressive and he was confronted on that. And he said, well, listen, the reason why I'm being aggressive, aggressive and quote is because one, he deserves it. And two, because it's the way to win. That's literally what he said. One, because he deserves it. And two, because it's the way to win. This is how our culture has defined life, flourishing, success, and winning, humiliating the other side. We've substituted how the Holy Spirit, how God defines life and flourishing, and we've inserted, even as Christians, a cultural understanding of what it means to win. Like, who needs, who needs a community that's about the, the flourishing of everyone when we can have a community when it's just about us to flourish and the destruction of everyone else? That's not how, by the way, the Holy Spirit defines winning life or flourishing. Galatians 5 kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of what it looks like to win or to experience life and flourishing. In Galatians 5, it says that there's the fruit of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When we think of fruit, what is fruit? Well, fruit is the produce of a tree, right? It's, it's, there's life, there's life from this tree and it produces something. And so to use that analogy, right, in Galatians, he's saying, okay, well, if the Spirit is this is alive inside of you, what kind of fruit, what kind of produce is the result of someone who is having a life of spirit-led life and flourishing? And, this, the, and uh, they, it writes in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the kind of life that the Spirit offers, not schadenfreude, the humiliation of others. The Spirit has a wholly different definition of life and flourishing. And what we're going to do here to, this morning is look at Acts 2, and I want us to dig in and, want, and you know, beyond just Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, what does it practically look like? What does it practically look like when we see a group of people that are... Uh, experiencing the life and the flourishing that the Holy Spirit has to offer. And I think it will help us answer for ourselves, how do we know if we are giving ourselves over to a false sense of life and flourishing, a cultural understanding of life and flourishing versus what the Spirit is actually offering us? And in Acts 2, I think we see three questions that we can ask ourselves to answer that question. Like, how do we know if we're experiencing genuine life and flourishing from the Spirit? These three questions here, we can ask ourselves. I think they'll be up on the screen as well. Number one, is my life marked by generosity? Number two, is my life marked by gratitude? And number three, is my life marked by gathering together? Super practical. Is my life marked by generosity, gratitude, and gathering together. So first, is my life marked by generosity? Acts 2, verses 44 through 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they are 
radically and eagerly generous. If, if I see a need that you have and I have it, here you go, I'll take care of it. And if I see a need that you have and I don't have it, it's like, well, I guess I'll sell some of my possessions and we'll figure it out, right? Nobody is going hungry. There might have been poor Christians in their midst, but nobody was hungry. They weren't starving. What's happening? What's happening here? Well, the person who is experiencing the life and the flourishing of the Holy Spirit is, is not just concerned with self-preservation only. They're focused on the needs of others. This is, by the way, all over the scriptures. It might be the single most defining marker of whether someone is a Christian or not. I kid you not, Matthew 25, Jesus says, hey, here's a test that I'm gonna do to, to, to determine if someone's a Christian or not, right? How did you treat the poor? How did you treat the needy? How did you treat those that were marginalized? And Jesus says, as you have done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. In other words, every time you encounter the poor, every time you encounter someone in need, Jesus is saying, you've encountered me. And how you treat that person is how you have treated me. So the Bible also, by the, I, I skipped this. The Bible also says that true religion is what? You guys know this, to take care of widows and orphans, right? This is all over the scriptures, all over the scriptures. Do you want to know if you're experiencing life and flourishing of the Holy Spirit as a Christian? Do you want to know if you're in a church that's experiencing life and flourishing of the Holy Spirit? The first question is always, am I marked by generosity? Is this church marked by generosity? And this makes sense because Jesus was generous to us, right? This is, there's gospel implications here. He gave up his life for us. So Jesus would give up his life unconditionally and generously for us, give up his life. How could we not then give up some of our possessions, some of our time to be generous to others? Generosity is a natural outflowing of the gospel. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to be the spotlight ministry, to spotlight Jesus, right? And that's what the Spirit is doing. It, he's, the Spirit is shining a light on Jesus and his generosity towards us. And then that causes us to say, wow, we should be generous like Christ and have, it, have a heart and a life that is marked by generosity. So that's the, the very first question to ask ourselves and to ask, you know, personally and corporately, am I, is my life marked by generosity? Is this church marked by generosity? Are we, are we uh, stepping into the life and flourishing of the Holy Spirit or are we only interested in our own self-preservation? Secondly, is my life marked by gratitude? Is my life marked by gratitude? In Acts 2, 46 through 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So they're glad. They're filled with gratitude. They're praising God. They're thankful. They are marked with a spirit of gratitude over what, God is doing in their midst. 
They aren't focused on what they don't have. They aren't focused on, on uh, you know, making the next big deal. They're not focused on what uh, John and Jane Doe next door have, right? Uh, they're just thankful to have one more meal, one more meal together. They're thankful to have a community. They're focused on the blessings of God, uh, large and small. They're, they're contented. They're, they're filled with gratitude. Do we see that in our society, in our culture anymore? Is, it, is our society marked with gratitude? Yeah, for like five minutes, right? When we get our new toy, our new thing, we're thankful for five minutes. I'm thankful for like five minutes for whatever new thing I have, like a little child, right? And then, uh, and then I'm not content anymore. And I've got my eyes set on something else that I don't have. Isn't that, isn't that all of us? We say to ourselves, because we're, we're not very self-aware, we say to ourselves, man, if I can just have this, if I can just have that, here's the thing that, that's lacking in my life. If I just have this thing in my life, this promotion or this home or this car or this whatever, if I can just get to this place and have this, then I'll be filled with gratitude, right? That's what we say to ourselves. That's what the lie that we tell ourselves. And then sometimes we get those things, we get it. And we're like filled with gratitude for a little bit. And then quickly it's like, wow, man, I got that promotion. But what I really want is just this next, right? The, the next thing, this one little different thing, this thing over here, this thing over here, then I'll be filled with gratitude. And it's this chasing of our tail, constantly telling ourselves that we'll be satisfied if we get to some place. And then when we get there, we're not satisfied any longer. I want more and more and more. Isn't it interesting that in our, in our economy, in the American economy, we are referred to, they created a word for us, consumers, right? They took the word consume and just added ers on the end, okay? And then they said, okay, we created this word for you. Here's what you are as an American. You're a consumer, it's interesting to me that in our economy, they didn't come up with a word like gratituders, which that sounds funny, but you know, gratituders. Oh, in our nation, we're a bunch of gratituders. We're just thankful for the things that we've got, that God has given us. No, 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 no. That's not the American way. You're not a gratituder, you're a consumer, <laughs> right? And, um, I, you know, I had this imaginary conversation. I, I imagined this conversation with God. And, and all of us, me, myself, and, and, and all of us. And I thought, if God was to come down and tell me or tell all of us, your lifestyle as it exists right now, your lifestyle as it exists right now, it will never exceed what you currently have in life. Your lifestyle is going to remain the same. Would I be filled with depression or gratitude? Truly. Like if God said to me, Eric, your life is never gonna exceed materially any, beyond anything that you have right now. What I say, oh, thank you. I've been given so much. I've been given so much. I've been born into a country of enormous wealth. I've been, I've been so enormously blessed. Thank you, Lord. Oh man, I'm so thankful. Or would I, say, would I actually be depressed? Oh my goodness, there's so many more things that I wanted out of life. Oh, I'm so depressed right? A marker of the Holy Spirit is that we're filled with gratitude. We've put the gifts that this world has to offer in their proper place. They're gifts. They're not God. They're just gifts. 
And we recognize that the source of our life, our flourishing and joy come from the security I have in Christ, not the security that I can provide for myself in my things. So how do we know if we're actually experiencing spirit-driven flourishing in life? Generosity, but also gratitude, thankfulness. And then lastly, is my life marked by gathering together? This is an interesting one. Gathering together. Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is fascinating. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and again, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit draws the sons and daughters of God together. The Holy Spirit draws the sons and daughters of God together. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us the presence of Christ the Holy Spirit also gives us the presence of the body of Christ, the church. He gives us each other. Notice what they're doing together. It's both sacred and mundane. Now, I would argue that everything is sacred, but rhetorically, right? It's, it's both sacred and mundane. They're, they're, they're meeting together to do what? Well, to do some sacred things, to pray. They're gathering together to, uh, to discuss the sermons that they're hearing together. They're gathering together to... Um, study the scriptures, but they're also just gathering together to eat. Really mundane, just living life together. And what the Spirit does in the heart of the Christian is to foster a love for God, but also a love for others. It's the two greatest commandments, right? To love God and to love others. And so the Spirit is drawing Christians together in ways that are mundane, but also sacred. And, um, I can, I can testify to this in my life. As I reflected on that, I'm like, well, has the Spirit really given me that gift throughout my life? And I thought about it and I was like, actually, it, it is kind of true. I've had the wonderful experience of finding deep, meaningful, gospel-centered friendships uh, as a Christian. And it's truly been a gift to this, uh, from the Spirit that I can attest to. When I was in college, I had a small group of friends guys that I got really close to, other Christian guys. And to this day, I communicate with those friends on a basically a weekly basis. We check in on each other. These are men who love God, love their families, and they've been a gift to me over the last 20 years. And I can remember um, when Amber and I got married, right, I mean, within a week of graduating, and we packed up our bags and we moved away. And I can remember having a conversation with Amber saying, man, I will probably never experience Christian camaraderie and friendship like that ever again. We were so close. So there was just a a brotherhood there. I'll probably never experience that again. And I was wrong. Uh, About uh, a year, a year and a half after graduating from college, I became a youth pastor uh, of a small church 
in Eastern Ohio. And, um, and we were there for a pretty short period of time for about three and a half, four years. Uh, but even in that short period of time, I was able to find friendships there where I was able to be vulnerable and share life with them. And when we left that church, I remember, and to come here, I can remember uh, saying to myself, man, I'm gonna miss that. I, I will probably never experience friendship like that ever again, right? That feeling, those, that, that loneliness of saying goodbye to a place. And guess what? I was wrong again. We came here and God has blessed me and my family with the gathering of believers in a very profound way for which I'm thankful to all of you. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't seasons of loneliness for the Christian. There certainly are. I've, I've had those seasons too. There are seasons of loneliness. And I'm also not saying that um, everything in the church is always wonderful with roses and a cherry on top, right? We're human beings. We sin against each other. There are hard things that we have to work through sometimes. Sometimes we really hurt each other, even in the church. But um, that's kind of like every other community that exists in the world, right? We're all sinful. But the distinctive thing about the Christian community is that we're centered on Jesus and his gospel. And that means this is a place where we can sort through our sinful humanity and we can still find mutual forgiveness mutual mercy, grace, kindness, comfort, friendship, and love. It's been said that the church isn't a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And um, that's a lesson that I think we understand intuitively and in theory, but it's really hard to get there in practice. When when I need to forgive you because you sinned against me or you need to forgive me because I sinned against you. That's hard. Or sometimes it's just hard to coexist with, you know, the other idiots in the room and it's hard for you guys to coexist with, you know, the idiots on the stage, <laughs> right? Uh, there is a kind of character development though that takes place when we enter into this kind of community and we're forbearing and we're forgiving and we're showing grace and mercy. Right? The church is going to look very different than the rest of society. Have you ever felt that uh, you don't just quite fit in, you know, in other places? Like the, the, the societies, the, the, the rest of the world, like you just don't quite fit in. You don't quite fully integrate. Like, like there's just, there's something about it. You just can't quite connect. And I think that's okay, actually. I don't think it's like a badge of honor. Uh, to be well-adjusted to a sick society, right? That's why Christians are just not going to fit in well, I think, to most of society's categories. I call it um, social homelessness. That's, that's true. That's like what a lot of, what the scriptures actually agree with that. Uh, Jesus says in uh, John 17 that they, Christians, are not of this world because I am not of this world. Paul says in Philippians that we are not citizens of any earthly kingdom, but that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter that we are strangers and aliens or foreigners, not like space aliens. That's not what he was talking about. But Peter writes that, that we are strangers and foreigners to this earth. Right? There's a kind of disconnect 
There's a, there's a sense in which when we're, we're experiencing the life and the flourishing of the Holy Spirit, we can only go so far in, in the rest of society. We don't always fit in very well everywhere, everywhere else, but we are not alone. We have each other. We have the church. There is the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit draws us together. What's fascinating is I've done dozens, if not a hundred different member interviews over the last 13 or 14 years of being a pastor here at the Oaks. And it's always fascinating to me to hear the stories of people as they come in and how they found the Oaks. I had one of those conversations just this morning, literally with someone. Uh, it's like, well, how did you find out about the Oaks? And then you hear their story and it's like, wow, the Holy Spirit was clearly doing a work there. The Holy Spirit was clearly drawing this person in. I've had all of those, uh, many of those conversations. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that God draws us together. But there's also a kind of warning in this as well. There is the person who will claim to have spiritual life. They will claim to be filled with the Spirit and they will also reject the gathering, right? They'll, they'll kind of espouse this Jesus plus me and no one else as an acceptable expression of faith. But in Hebrews 10, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, even more so as you see the day approaching. 1 John 4 goes even farther talking about this, the, the fake, false uh, definitions of life and flourishing in spirit versus the, re, the real, the real deal. Uh, in 1 John 4, verse 1, he says, he writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he begins to flesh out what this looks like, these these. these people who have a fake kind of spirituality versus those who have a genuine spirit-led life and flourishing. And he says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So it's not, it's not a spirit-led thing to be a spiritual isolationist. The Holy Spirit always, one of the markers, if, if, if the Spirit is doing a work in you and is, and is bringing life and flourishing to you in your heart, yes, there's generosity and yes, there's, there's gratitude, but there's also a drawing in, a, a love that you'll have in your heart for the church. And so this is enormously practical. This is enormously practical. It's great for self-examination. We've got these three things. And maybe you would, you would um, honestly say, you know what? My life isn't marked by generosity, or maybe it's not marked by ga uh, gratitude or gathering together with other believers. Um, then it's like, okay, good. Let's do some self-examination. It could be that we're here operating and we're lacking in these things because we have gotten rid of the life and flourishing as it's defined by the spirit and we've bought into schadenfreude or a fa another false cultural uh, substitute, right? And so this is enormously helpful to kind of 
see if our lives are marked by these things, if our church is marked by these things. Maybe there's a cultural counterfeit that is promising you life and flourishing, but I can guarantee that no substitute will ever ultimately deliver. From Genesis, as we saw today, from Genesis to eternity in heaven, it's the spirit who gives life and no one and nothing else. And this life was purchased for us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. It was purchased for us generously by Jesus through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And we, re we remind ourselves of that every week that we gather, that it's not about us, that it's ultimately about Christ. And so we remember that Jesus took the bread on the day that he was crucified and he broke it and he said to his disciples, his followers, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup of wine and he said, and this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so in a moment, if you're a Christian, you're invited. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to be a Christian. You can come forward and you can take a piece of the bread and you can dip it in the wine or the juice as your conscience permits. There's, if, you're, if you have a gluten intolerance, there's going to be a gluten-free station, gluten -free station over here uh, that you can uh, take. And we remember, right, that, it's, that uh, it's Christ who generously provided for us. And so we are generous to others. And we have a sense of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And then we take this together, not by ourselves, but we take this as a gathering together uh, to remember what Christ has done. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your spirit, which has given us life and flourishing. And Lord, oftentimes we look at that life and flourishing and we say, eh, that's not what I want. And Lord, I pray that you'd convict my heart, you'd convict all of our hearts where we have substituted the life and flourishing that you are offering to us through your spirit. And instead we've, we've taken a lousy substitute. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the eyes to see something more beautiful, a way more beautiful than what our culture is offering. And that we'd be able to enter into a, a a life with you, a flourishing with you that um, looks like Acts 2, that looks like the believers that are experiencing flourishing and mutual love. I pray that that is true, at least for our church, Lord. And I, I would pray that that would uh, capture our culture as well. But Lord, let it start with us. Let us examine our hearts and let your spirit convict us of where we have bought into something else other than life and flourishing that you have to offer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.